0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Once again, the Canadians have taken over the podcast and will continue to talk about their public health response and genome epidemiology of COVID-19. We cross back to their conversation now.
1: We've, so far, we've talked about tools, we've talked about variants of concern, and no podcast would be complete, especially one that Will and I are involved in, if we don't talk about metadata. As we've already discussed, there's a lot of players that are contributing uh, information to our National Genomic Surveillance Database. Uh, there's a lot of different metadata streams coming into that database. So how is the metadata being harmonized for analyses? Well, I'm, I'm looking right at you.
2: From my experience, uh, I was a, a mathematician and a scientist in a, in the public health lab for a period of about eight years. So the challenges associated with data sharing in the public health system is something that I'm uh, highly familiar with, but also sympathetic with, because it's not just people are not sharing data, they're not sharing data often for the, the right reason in terms of privacy and in terms of uh, logistics, right? Like to prepare the data for sharing often consumes a lot of uh, valuable time, especially during pandemic. So early on in the CancoGen effort, we divided the data, the metadata into three different tiers. We sort of label the low risk, de identified information, the minimum metadata that can be used, that can be hof- uh, that can be released publicly and used by researchers right away. And then we have a middle tier that consists a bit more than just uh, the minimum metadata that can be useful for national surveillance and national tracking. So in other words, data that will be shared between the province, and the national lab. And then we have what we call the, the local metadata. In other words, metadata that are identifiable that each of our partners are encouraged to keep uh, for themselves. The data, of course, will later on be valuable for research as well, but we might not have time to de identify them or we'll process them for research. But we nevertheless encourage these data uh, types to be kept in a standardized format and therefore can later on be de-identified and used for research purposes. So we established these three tiers of data uh, grades, and that formed the framework of the Kenkojin Metadata Management Plan. Little did we know that the, the minimum metadata part actually took a few months to negotiate, and we realized that what one province or one jurisdiction defined uh, as non-identifiable information or de-identified information, namely, for example, age and gender and the date of, of sampling. It normally considers non-identifiable given that uh, there's sufficient number of people sharing the same, nevertheless become a point of discussion over a period of a few months within Canada to sort out. And we even had to consult legal experts to help us uh, understand whether there's any legal barrier saying that these data types indeed constitute identifiable information. And we end up writing memos to the public house to to help them understand that the, the global consensus is that these types of information are indeed not considered identifiable. And the release of such information, as we know by now, can help, especially the data sampling, can can really help with global tracking of the viruses and, and, and to understand the transmission of the virus. So that was sort of our um, metadata uh, organization sort of framework. And in terms of the metadata harmonization, it, indeed, it's very much Emma who's leading the work as part of the KencoGen and uh, the PHAGE uh, consortia.
1: What, what does PHAGE stand for?
2: So PHASE stands for Public Health Alliance for Genomic
3: Epidemiology. You'd think a working group chair would know that, well, don't you? You might think Uh, that. Oh, right. (laughs) No,
2: I think she, yeah, so... She's I'm trying sorry, to quiz me
1: rather than
3: not knowing Yeah, there's yeah, sure. no fun to let her get away with that like that. <laughs> so
1: hey, Matt, I'm just asking the questions here. You guys are the ones in charge of that.
2: <laughs> Very much early on, we have established a, a long list of metadata that are relevant to um, SARS-CoV-2 sampling and have published that as part of the phage consortium. And then, and of course, adopted for the canker use. So within that large data set is the minimum metadata that I I mentioned before, but also the overall standard consists of additional data fields that that we deem relevant. And this is Very much done in consultation with academic researchers with public health workers and and other types of stakeholders that are involved in the pandemic response and over time over the last year we have had additional fields to to keep track for example the reason for doing sequencing which can help with the interpretation in epidemiology the reason for doing a data sample collection or data collection and, and the so-called denominator used in the calculation is its often very key to the analysis. So tracking information about why samples were collected and the scope of sample collection and the inclusion-exclusion criteria and so on, much things that we over the time added into the standard to help improve the granularity and improve the, the details for information and and the standard have been made publicly available. and Indeed, we work in the open access, open data framework to ensure that these uh, standards are widely available and, and anyone can use them. And, and indeed, anyone can contribute to them and help us improve these standards. And also within the KencoGen project, we have established a group that programmers have helped to develop tools to help standardize the data collection process. So in my group we developed a tool called the data harmonizer that can be used to uh, capture the, the metadata in standardized format. And it has built-in validation to ensure that the data is in the format that consists with the standard and also has an has export functions that allow the data to be exported in a format that's compatible with public repositories and other or, organizational needs, such as within gen reporting to the national lab. There's a specific format that's needed, metadata harmonizer essentially handles the data conversion for you. And as I mentioned before, some of these data cleaning efforts are time consuming. So these tools are designed to help streamline the efforts for data standardization harmonization. And also Emma leads a curation team that help stakeholders to manually clean up the the raw data and do the conversions. Uh, sometimes with the help of the data harmonizer, and sometimes indeed the data are so incompatible that they need to be manually harmonized. And we, we have a des- designated team that uh, help to, to achieve that so we can have high-quality metadata.
1: So I just want to give a quick shout out to the uh, previous Microbiology Podcast episode where we discussed the phage metadata standard. Uh, We'll link to that, as well as all any of the tools that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes, uh, so that if you're interested in using that standard, uh, you'll be able to. So at this point, uh, I want to get maybe a little controversial. Uh, I want to address an elephant in the room. So Canada has been sometimes criticized in the media, and occasionally by its own scientists, for the slow pace of data sharing with public repositories. So I'm going to uh, lob this grenade over to the both of you to comment on that, particularly why that might be the case and what are the steps that are being done to improve the situation. So I don't know who wants to start.
3: I would say it's it's not just the sharing of data at all to the public databases. It's also sharing incomplete metadata, particularly in terms of incomplete date metadata. Art Poon has done some really at Western has done some really nice uh, plots that uh, demonstrate that in the among the uh you know western countries that have been doing a lot of sequencing canada has a particularly low percentage of their genomes in gis that have complete date metadata mm-hmm. and that varies hugely by province as well right. so it's i mean it's really again it's a product i'm i mean I'm an immigrant to Canada, so I can't badmouth it too much because they can still deport me. So they don't have to give me citizenship. I think it's largely a product of that kind of fragmented, having those all those individual provinces that all have their own legal systems, all have their own data, data privacy rules. And then you have the federal government, which has different relationships with each of those provinces, has stronger and weaker ones, more contentious ones, based on you know which governments are put in charge, for example. And so that kind of adds a whole other layer to that. And there's a lot of provinces that are looking forward that maybe are interested in being more independent than others um, from the federal government so are keen to avoid anything they see as uh, a reach of federal government power and enforcing a federal government power so they're kind of looking to the future um although will i think has been at the sharp end of a lot of these uh, discussions (laughs) and issues more than i have been
1: Yeah. So, well, I'm sure you have a few things to say about
0: this.
2: I think that the key challenge indeed, as we mentioned, is that there's different privacy laws in each province. And in addition to that, each province has its own uh, privacy officers and, and lawyers interpreting these laws. So to derive a consensus that can be shared across Canada has proven to be challenged time and times again. There are previous attempts to try to come up with multilateral agreements for data sharing in public health, and all seem all end up being held up by, you know, difference of of opinions across the country. And indeed, that we are seeing that again during the the COVID nineteen response. Some provinces are very quick to share data. Other provinces are are willing to share data but has reservations such as release of date information to its full extent because the potentially well i'm actually not sure exactly who's making the calls but the privacy officers or the public medical health officers and so on may deem those data to be identifiable and therefore refuse to release that publicly and canada as a whole indeed it is what well, I would characterize as more risk averse when it comes to releasing of information into the public. So contrast to countries like Denmark, which and, and some other countries that are quick to release these case-related information in a de-identified manner, Canada overall just has more uh, taking a more cautious approach. But while that's the main problem indeed, elephant in the room, Some of the considerations that came up during the discussion, nevertheless, I think it's valid. For for example, at the beginning of the discussion, attentions were paid to the quality of the data being released. So a lot of efforts, as Finn has already alluded to, uh, went into the QC of Canadian data, the de-hosting of Canadian data to ensure that the data released of high quality, and that includes both sequence data and metadata. So, so that also contribute to the legitimately contributed to to the delay. I think there's no one major reason that that we overall are slow to respond, but many many different reasons, and we have addressed them one after another as part of the Cancelling uh, coordinated effort. And I do think moving forward, we'll see the Canadian data being released much more quickly. And uh, hopefully, uh, as part of this COVID-19 response, we will come up with a better system for releasing of sequence data and the minimum data uh, for public into the public repository for global pandemic or global outbreak response.
3: What's kind of interesting in Canada and the kind of thing that we haven't talked about is the legal... The legal framework in the federal government does actually give the federal government the power to compel provinces and territories to share all their data. The Public Health Agency of Canada Act, set up in 2004 after the first SARS pandemic, mm-hmm. um, as well as Stats the Statistics Act. So those powers exist, but yeah. the problem is so much of the function of Canada is, a right, is based on there being relatively good working relationships between different provinces, different uh territories as well as you know sovereign First Nations bands across Canada. That's a whole other aspect of kind of interesting complexity, you know by being a settler nation that encompasses many other sovereign entities, there's a whole other layer of kind of international diplomacy within Canada essentially. So that adds a lot of kind of complexity to that. And there's a lot of, especially amongst some of those communities, a lot of reasonable hesitation and worry about the federal government exerting power. There's kind of an interesting dance going on between, you know, we're not going to compel these provinces to, we're not going to use these acts to compel the province to do this if you share the data with us. Mm -hmm. We're not going to force you if you do it, kind of. So there's an interesting, that kind of dance. But it does, like, there's a lot of criticism about this. And there has, you know, some people have gone as far as, you know, the, you know, the international health regulations set up by WHO after you know, after subversed uh, pandemic, basically, you know, that all member nations must be able to share, you know, detailed epidemiological information with WHO, is Canada, due to this provincial-federal gap, is actually in violation of Some people have gone as far as making that argument. So it's a huge, huge problem, but it's, it's not one that's got really one easy, quick solution because it requires all of these moving parts to kind of move in concert without anyone getting trodden on in the way. At
2: the end of the day, the public health system is to serve the public in health officers and and but both federal and provincial level making calls on behalf of what they think is, are the best for the population mm-hmm. but um news medias and so on time and times again highlighted that the canadians do think that the the, the data sharing challenges are seen in canada are detrimental to the to the Um, pandemic response. So I think there's an opportunity there to really assess indeed what are the public opinions when it comes to sharing of some of these minimum de-identified information uh, publicly and and timely for the uh, combat of infectious diseases. And that would allow potentially uh, freeing the the public health authorities hand a bit more because they know that they're doing it in accordance to the population's desire and wish. I think that's a critical missing piece. And that's why everyone has been a bit more risk averse, not wanting to be the one accused of, of breaching privacy or bre- breaching people's trust.
1: So um, to to sort of look towards wrapping things up, um, looking at the overall picture of SARS-CoV-2 sequencing in Canada, What are the things that you would say are working well, and what are the ongoing challenges? We've talked a lot about these things uh, throughout the podcast today, but in summary, what would both of you say are the things that are working well, and what are the sticky wickets that we're that we're looking at?
3: I mean, I would say one of the things that really is working well is essentially every time we've kind of cross cut that particular problem of the federal provincial systems and all those things by th- having things like cancogen having these different working groups and having just ad hoc conference calls where all the people even from say a province that doesn't like sharing data and really doesn't like the federal government but all the people working in the health labs there are you know working hard on the same problem and are are eager, eager to discuss things with you know their counterparts in other provinces so there's some really great kind of discussion and conversation going on about that and like I, I like, I think it's good, there seems to be a lot of discussion about kind of looking to the future, about trying to build more like long-lasting infrastructure for this and really scaling up the use of genomic epidemiology, which as three people who have all spent a lot of time trying to get genomic epidemiology working, you know, more broadly across Canada for foodborne disease and so on is, is a good thing. And, you know, individual hospitals, like how do we ramp up our use of genomics? You know, this is been really important or really useful. So I think that's one of the really good things.
2: I agree. And I would say it sums up to this is a trust building exercise. And we are indeed through this process, know and highlighting some of the barriers and challenges. And, and I think we indeed need to overcome them and, and build better trust within the Canadian public health system. So that, I think that's what's going really well, you know, the communication. Um, and the, we all know that we spend disproportionate amount of time in meetings and so on. But in a way, those are necessary in order to, for, for a large group of people in a large country to achieve consensus and to, to share expertise and share knowledge. And I see that sort of. Really come across in the Kenco gen activities. What I don't think working very well is uh, we still have that gap between what the practitioners are for, uh, working on and, and what we are sort of work you know working tirelessly trying to build pipelines, working tirelessly trying to build tools for sharing data and so on. But we still have that gap of understanding in terms of what are the need to be put in place in order for data sharing to to occur across Canada? What are some of the guidance documents or what are some of the regulations that need to be put in place? And as we mentioned earlier in in this conversation, indeed that Canada has to improve its overall framework for, for public health data sharing in order to be more responsive in the future. And for that, I don't think we've done enough work uh, to understand that process. And for and within Canada, indeed, that has to be the focus for our sort of year two of efforts, trying to understand the legal, the governance, the governance, the ethical considerations, trying to understand the public health. Uh, sorry, the public opinion on public health data sharing better across Canada. And by improving the social science aspect of data sharing, I think that's when we can really bring the, the technical work that we have put in place into its full utility.
1: Great. And and so um, in bringing the, this episode to a close, I just want to ask you one final question that probably overlaps with the last question. But um, if you were advising a country with a decentralized health system that was starting to build capacity for SARS-CoV-2 sequencing. Based on the lessons that you've learned, what advice would you give?
3: I mean, the first thing is centralize as much of the, I think analysis and data collection and curation as you can, just so there is at least not necessarily even in, in like there being one final repository, but there just being some form of centralized data repository in some form of shared analytical platform. And there's lots of different ways of doing that. You know, there's things like Irida, you know, that we've talked about. There's, you know, SP3 for tuberculosis. Like there's there's kind of a lot of different ways of trying to do that. Uh, I would say the best way and the way that we've tried to deal with that fragmented decentralization is really trying to focus on QC metrics and having a robust set of QC metrics that are clearly communicated, but then also checked in that centralized fashion. So genome genomes being checked in a centralized way and then third i think largely just try and do what the uk did but try not to have a tory government (laughs) like the break you know the genomic epidemiology side of the uk and many people listening to this are involved in that effort has been excellent has been really world-leading but the gap has been in the way that that information is being used government level at a political level to actually implement policy i would say and that's where there has been major issues so yeah trying not to have a conservative government tends to help
2: (laughs) yeah well indeed you look at the countries that responded well to COVID 19 versus country that respond poorly there is a high correlation between the strong national leadership when it comes to you know disseminating expertise and policies right and those are actually ironically the strong national leadership comes from more likely come from a liberal government than from a conservative government right usually you associate strong national uh, centralized leadership with conservative government but but it's indeed actually the the liberal government that provide much more more um, leadership in in this area and so I would 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 echo Finn's comment uh even though I don't know if that comment about the Tory government is going to be I, it's either going to it be made the out. tagline of this talk or or, or <laughs> will be cut out so we'll see I
3: mean if you have a government that's already expressed its uh contempt towards starving people and allowing ongoing use of food banks and unprotection of vulnerable people such as the homeless Is Mm -hmm. it surprising that on a policy level when there's a pandemic those same vulnerable populations are going to be particularly left exposed and i'm not saying canada's done a particularly great job at this overall either you know there's been a huge issue of not protecting vulnerable populations and not really factoring ses there is a lot of work trying to go into that but Mm -hmm. one of the problems we have in canada is environmental so we have an issue of you know very cold winters so when you have shelter systems that then have to reduce their capacity to increase social distancing you have to have people making a choice between a vulnerable population with comorbidities that's a case fatality rate around 10 plus percent for COVID-19, versus what's the case fatality rate for freezing to death? Yeah. So the really that that is where, like, you know, you know, we we we're, you know, we're drama company always, we're buying from like we're in the data, but like there is a point where that's actually directly impacting policy. And that final link of the chain is something I think we should be trying to get more involved in. And I think that's actually a key part of trying to build a decentralized health system using genomics is the domain experts actually have to get far more involved in that political side far more involved in that implementation side because otherwise we a we can get divorced in the entire process we can lose track of what we're actually doing and whether it's like the impact of even our mistakes
1: right
3: and we're gonna have made mistakes in this process when we do all the yeah okay
2: and using current technology to, to um Indeed, the strengths of of, uh, a uh, web-based technology is that you can have highly connected decentralized system that still communicate and functions well. But the key there is to have a a trust framework that, that enables data to be shared in that decentralized system rather than setting up silos in decentralized system. So my advice, and it doesn't have to be top three things, is that if you have decentralized healthcare system, you should have a well-connected decentralized healthcare system. The one that one that functions through uh, sharing of data, sharing of information and sharing of expertise.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna end things on those calls to action. Uh, I want to thank Will and Finn for sharing all their expertise and their knowledge and their great banter here today. Uh, I'd also like to thank Lee, Nabil and Andrew for inviting us on the show, as well as all of our Kinkagen partners and all the hardworking frontline workers everywhere who sacrifice their time, energy, and safety to keep us safe. So if you want to get a hold of us uh, to continue these discussions, you can uh, tap us on the shoulder at the Microbe Slack, or uh, you can contact us by email. We'll be sure to pop all of the links to any of the tools that we mentioned today in the show notes. And with that, thanks everyone and stay safe.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.